Mr. Gershengorn. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Congress enacted ICWA because Indian children were being torn from their families and tribes through the operation of state family law in state courts. I want to emphasize three points at the start. First, there is no, Congress has plenary power over Indians, and there is no exception in that power for state court child custody proceedings. Since the founding, the health and safety of Indian children has been the province of the federal government and tribes, not the states. And indeed, when Congress attempted to give states authority over Indian children in the 20th century, states resisted and said it was an exclusive federal responsibility. Second, plaintiff's equal protection claim should be rejected. A facial challenge in a case without standing is just about the worst way to consider the constitutionality of a major federal statute. And in any event, ICWA draws distinctions that are political three times over. It applies only to tribes that the federal government has recognized. It incorporates membership criteria established by sovereign tribes, and it relies on the political decisions of parents to remain tribal members. Third, ICWA protects the best interests of children. It adopts a system of structured decision-making that combines evidence-based presumptions with flexibility to make individualized determinations. It protects child safety, facilitates access to critical remedial services to keep families intact, and it keeps, works to keep, family, keep children with their families and communities. That's why ICWA is viewed as the gold standard. I'd be happy to take the court's questions. If not, I will start with, with the... Uh, <laughs> but I'm also happy to keep going. <laughs> Not that easy. Um, do you think that ICWA incorporates the familiar best interests of the child inquiry that are, are applied in family courts uh, throughout the country? So I think I'd have to say the answer to that is no. What ICWA does is modify that because Congress made the judgment that the best interest standard was being implied in a way that resulted in unwarranted removals. What Congress did was create a system it thought was in the best interest of the child, but not by adopting the, quote, state best interests of the child standard because it found that that was being applied in a discriminatory way. Now, so you're on, there's been a lot of back and forth about good cause, and it seems like good cause is important in the statute. I will say candidly, having looked at the cases, there are three, the, the state courts are in a little bit of disarray as to whether the preferences are sort of binding, whether there's a straight free-floating best interest standard that sort of that, that works um, through good cause, or whether, as I think is probably the way Congress intended it, that there's a, the placements are the default setting and good cause provides a, a way to rebut the presumption. Now, Interior has, has explained how good cause works. It involves, you can take into account the decisions of the, the views of the parents, the views of the child, if the child uh, is old enough to express them. You can take into account sibling attachment. You can take into account bonding with foster parents as long as it was not done illegally through ICWA. The thing you cannot take into account is socioeconomic status. So what the Casey brief and others say, and what the reason why medical professionals are here, states are here, family rights acts, uh, advocates are here, is because ICWA is the gold standard. It adopts that those evidence-based presumptions and allows for flexibility to protect the best interests of the child. Um, so. With respect to sort of the power debate, which has been going on, I want to make a couple of points. Um, first, this is at the core of the plenary power doctrine. From the beginning, 
the, um, the plenary power doctrine was used to protect Indians from non-Indians. There is no doubt that if states had moved in and done a wholesale physical removal of Indian children, that would have been within the duty of protection. The fact that this is being done through state courts, through state family law, doesn't deprive Congress of power. Justice Barrett, you were asking about limits. Obviously, when we're talking about plenary power, limits are hard to find, but I will say this court has identified some. What I would say is when Congress acts directly on Indians, the limits on plenary power as opposed to the other provisions are hard to find. But what Congress said in Perrin was that when Congress acts on non-Indians to protect Indians, then there may be limits. And in that case, it was the question of banning alcohol sales outside of reservations. And what the Congress said, what the court said, was that if you're doing it in counties where there are a lot of Indians, probably okay. If you're doing it statewide, when Indians are concentrated in a, a, a number of counties, not okay. And so that's a limit that this court has identified. The limit that does not exist is the one that's tied to land. I've already addressed the limit for uh, state custody proceedings, which, you know, it, Congress has acted for servicemen to say deployment is not something you can take into, it cannot be dispositive in a best interest finding. Like Congress has acted pursuant to other federal powers to do exactly what it did in ICWA. Um, the, the rule that makes no sense is land. Why does it make no sense? From the beginning, Congress has, uh, from, the 17th, from the Trade and Intercourse Act forward, Congress has legislated off reservation. It, it prohibited in the 1834 Act in Section uh, 15, alienating the confidence of Indians. In the earlier acts, it, um, it required non-Indians to report Indian invasions to the federal government. It prohibited land sales by Indians on and off the reservation. In the liquor sale context, what this court said in McGowan was Congress has the authority to legislate wherever Indians may be. And holiday, 43 gallons, Perrin, all those cases are off reservation. In the treaty cases, this court has seen in uh, fishing vessel, in Cougar Den, Right? Those were off reservation. Um, and then Indian um, Health Care Improvement Act, the Indian Housing, uh, Native American Housing Assistance Program, the Indian Education Program, all of those are off reservation. Why does land make no sense? Land makes no sense because in the Articles of Confederation, there was a land carve out. And it was exactly the kind of reason that we had the change in the Constitution to prevent that. Why does land make no sense? There are landless tribes. Right? There are landless tribes in California and Montana. Land is just not a sensible way to divide and limit congressional power. There were several what? questions. Go ahead. Sure. There were several questions earlier about the justification for granting preference for foster or adoptive parents who are members of an entirely different tribe. Uh, could you speak to that? Certainly, Your Honor. Does that, is that based on, on, on the assumption that um, all tribes are fungible no, or sufficiently similar to justify that? No, what right. is it based on? It is based on the view that 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 all federally recognized all federally recognized tribes and members of those tribes share a common political relationship with the United States. That's what renders it political rather than racial. Every member of a federally recognized tribe shares that political relationship. Now that then begs the question that a number of the justices have focused on about is it rational? That's a fair question and that's a fair debate. Let me explain why I think it clearly is rational. And some of this uh, Mr. Needler touched on and I agree with. It has a clearly, remember, we're talking about a, 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 prefer, a, a prong that was never applied to any of the 
um, of the plaintiffs here, and on a facial challenge, right? All, I, all it has to have is a plainly legitimate scope, which it does. In Alaska, for example, it is quite common for Indian me members of one tribe to live on the reservation of another. The preference applies quite often there, right? What the, what your court, what the court has been worrying about is this kind of Maine to Arizona hypo, right? That we identify some tribe in Maine that's going to somehow get a preference. Well, that case has never happened Ab that, that we've been able to find an able counsel on the other side has been able to find. And I would submit on a facial challenge in a situation where it's never applied, that would be very odd to strike down a congressional statute. I will say, though, that I, for the reasons I've said, I think it's, it is actually quite rational. If the court disagreed, it's also clearly severable. If I, give a, if I say I would like you know, Italian food, Chinese food, and any steak joint, and it turns out there's a vegan in the group that I can't do the steak joint, the first two preferences remain, okay? There's well, no why is it rational? I understand that uh, it's a facial challenge, but why, why, why is it rational? It, uh, before the arrival of Europeans, uh, the tribes were at war with each other often, and they were separated by an entire continent. And I, I don't know how many cultural similarities you would identify if you compared uh, a tribe in Florida with a tribe in Alaska. So, Your Honor, I think it's been pretty clear. I'm not basing this on cultural similarity. I'm basing it on a political relationship with the United States that all the tribes share. Now, I take Your Honor's point. If we had a case, and this is why you wait for, um, for actual uh, for actual as-applied challenges as opposed to facial challenges. If we had a case where a family was denied because a tribe in Maine with no ties to the child was given preference over a, a, a Cherokee or a Navajo Indian, we would be talking about a pretty serious, uh, a pretty serious as-applied challenge. But of course, we're, we're a million miles from that. We're the exact opposite. What you're hearing and what, the, what is actually happening on the ground is this is used in situations which are quite unremarkable. As I say, when a member of one tribe is living on the reservation of another has built exactly the kind of community that ICWA is hoping to preserve. So, uh, you know, I, from, from my perspective, I certainly am not here to defend the, the, what I'll call the Maine to Arizona hypo. But I, what I am here to say is it has a plainly legitimate sweep. It is political, not racial, and that, that, it, uh, that um, even if your honors disagree with that, it's also plainly severable. Counsel, um, on the political and racial uh, point, I'd like to return to the uh, dialogue between uh, Justice Barrett and Mr. Needler, which, if I understand it, uh, raised the question, because there are several hypotheticals where Mr. Needler, uh, I think, properly recognized that that would present a harder case. Um, and I think the suggestion was, well, is it a harder case because the racial aspect of what is a combined, in most cases anyway, combined polity and uh, uh, blood characterization, uh, in that case that the racial aspect predominates in some particular way. Right. That seemed to resonate with you? No, Your Honor. You'd be perhaps unsurprised. To, no. The way I would view it is, and this was, I think, one of the ways Justice Barrett framed it, which is how I think about it, which is that's a political characterization. If we're basing, if, if Congress is making a judgment on federally recognized tribes, remember that's excluding people who have left the tribe. That's excluding state recognized tribes. So your that's answer, but, I'm, I'm but could I finish? Because I, I want to respond directly to your question. I'm not finishing on a, on a tangent. Directly to your question, it is uh, a political um, 
justification, but it has to meet the Mankari standard. Special treatment tied rationally to the fulfillment of Congress's unique obligations to the Indians. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is that a bare desire to help individual Indians doesn't satisfy it. That's what Mankari suggests, right? Mankari says you can't just give a preference to any Indian uh, even a, federally, a member of a federally recognized tribe throughout the government. A bare desire to, to help um, is not enough. It, you know, we could go, I don't want to parse agency by agency. I think DOJ, which does all the litigation for the government and Indian tribes, probably is a situation where you could justify a preference. But the main point, Your Honor, is that Mankari has some bite, right? Mankari says you can't just decide you're going to help any individual Indians and then, you know, close the book. Right. Um, so you disagree with Mr. Needler, who did say that in those variety of cases that they would present a harder, a harder case. I, I'm not saying I don't disagree that it's a harder case. I'm just saying I view them as political. You'd win it just because, it, no, despite the fact. Well, that I'd have to hear the particular hypos, Your Honor. But let me. I want to be clear about the m method of analysis, and then I'm happy to answer whatever hypos Your Honor wants. The the my method of analysis is if the federal government imposes it on federally recognized tribes, it's political. It then has to meet the test that was set forth in Mankari. It had the justification has to be tied rationally to the fulfillment of Congress's unique obligations to the Indians. Some of those, you know, Mankari said BIA, okay, federal government wide, not okay. And, you know, then I need to see what Congress said. What makes this case so easy, right, is Congress studied this for four years, right? Congress told you exactly why, not in legislative history, but in legislative findings that it said, this is what we're worried about, right? We, this, is, this is going to the, this is not a peripheral, um, a, a mere desire to benefit individual Indians. This is going to the core of tribal self-government. Well, what about the... Uh the hypothetical about uh, providing COVID vaccines. And suppose Congress says uh, Indians, uh, the Indian population on the whole has more people with, complicate, with, uh, with factors that make them more vulnerable to uh, serious consequences from getting COVID and therefore they should get preference over others in, uh, the in the distribution of vaccines. So, Your Honor, the way you've posed the hypo, I would consider that a racial classification, not a political one. If Congress were to say just Indians, undefined, that might well be uh, a racial classification, might well be. If Congress were to say we're giving it to members of federally recognized Indian tribes first because <clears throat> we find on reservations where the individuals are concentrated, that there's a particular problem because they don't have access to health care and hospitals in the same way, then I think that would be defensible. That would All be right. a political well, let me classification. Modify it. it applies to members of federally recognized tribes, but it not it's not limited to what happens on the reservation. So I it's think that everywhere. I think that would be harder. And it goes back to the bare, de bare desire. That would be a political classification. But the bare desire to help members of tribes is not uh, we think is not, forget what we think, is not what the court has said um, is sufficient under Mankari. And so, uh, you know, I think that, that that's, how I, that's how I think about it. You know, look, uh, any of the hypos could have hard questions. I've tried to give the court a sense of what I think this court's, court's cases demand and therefore how we think about it. Um, you, I, I, I'd like you to finish. No, that. I'm done. Uh, you, <laughs> You say helping Indians is not enough, but what's the helping Indians plus what? So I think some link, Your Honor, to uh, tribal self-government is sort of at the core, and that's why I think ICWA is really so 
easy because uh, what, what makes Congress made the findings and, and a number of the justices touched on it this morning. Congress made the findings that the wholesale unwarranted removal of 25 to 35 percent of Indian children was devastating tribes and tribal self-government. There is nothing more core. Uh, this is a place where I disagree quite strongly with uh, my friends on the other side. Like there is nothing more central to self-government than deciding who uh, so you know, who's a member. And you don't how take does, my word for it. That's how what Congress does healthcare, said. the education, the housing allotments, how do they fit in? Uh, I, I think those are it, the other Title 25. Yeah, I think that those are that shows, Your Honor, a, a number of things. First of all, it shows that Congress has routinely there's not you know there's this sense. I think that Mankari sprung up from you know from the from the earth you know 40 years ago, uh, but, but what what. Congress has been legislating to help Indians since the beginning, right? It is in the Constitution, and it is there, not just, I'm not using that as sort of a, aha, it's in the Constitution. It's in the Constitution because tribes are, Indians are treated in the Constitution like political entities, right? Cong they're treated parallel in the, in, the, in, the, in the Commerce Clause with foreign nations and with states. They're, Congress has the power to treat, to conduct treaties with Indians, right? They are, they are political from the beginning, and like, I mean, I don't want to list all of the Indian-specific statutes, right, but the Dawes Act, the Indian Civil Rights Act, the uh, Indian or Reorganization Act, you know, ICWA, IGRA. I mean, Congress has routinely uh, singled out members of federally recognized tribes for legislation. Mr. Gershengorn, right? I want to go back to something you said, because you said, it, you know, it's obvious that when you remove 30 percent of children from a political community, you harm that political community. I think um, some of the strong feelings about this case come from a sense of, yes, but what about the children? I mean, you do harm the political community, but are you saying that the political community is more important than the welfare of the children? And, 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 and so that's the thing that I think uh, people sure. going, whoa. Yeah. I mean, so... Um, I'm glad you asked that, Your Honor. I, mean, I think it's critical that what Congress found is not just that ICWA was, was important for preserving the tribal community. Congress found that ICWA was in the best interests of the children, right? I, I don't think I could emphasize it more than, than that. What Congress found was that it was, it was in the interest of the children, and the reason that Congress found that is because, and the reason ICWA has become the gold standard, is because Congress made the judgment and recognized that separating children from their families and communities too soon caused harm. I think it's important to recognize that the average age of people in ICWA is over six years old, as discussed in the Casey brief. These are children who have formed school, school bonds. They are children who are playing on sports teams. They are children who have interacted, have a group of friends. They've been made connections on the community. And what ICWA realizes is that these children were being taken from their communities too soon. Why? Well, sometimes there was abuse at home, right? But what ICWA says is a lot of times that is remediatable, which is why we have the active efforts provision, right? It's substance abuse, right? It's, it's the ability, if you can get the child out of the home, get the care to the parents, then the child will actually thrive when the child is returned to the home and community. What, so what, I, what about the third preference, which is a preference for members of another tribe. How does that have to do with keeping the uh, uh, Indian child 
uh, on the reservation. So, Your Honor, as I've suggested, with the, the, with the, the familiar environment, as you suggested. Sure. The, and the, the 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 quickest answer to that, Your Honor, is that, that in my experience, or I should say, my experience talking with people who actually experience this, um, which is as close as I've gotten, is that the way this comes up most often actually is tribes is individual Indians living on the on the reservation of another. And so they are building exactly that community. This is not some random tribe plucked from the ether that all of a sudden gets a well, preference no in the real world. Absolutely, Your Honor. And I am not here to say, in fact, I think I've conceded that it would be extraordinarily difficult as applied challenge in the kinds of, uh, again, I'm using as a shorthand, the Maine to Arizona hypo. But I don't think this is at all difficult on a facial challenge in the real world where this plays out. Because what's happening in the world, and remember, we're, we're talking about not a single example of this appears in any of the briefing that I have seen, okay? And so what's happening in the real world is that individuals are, are individual members are living on the reservations of another and, and then the preference is going to that tribe. Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Sotomayor. You, um, in your opening statement, you said that this is a bad case to deal with this question because the individual plaintiffs don't have standing. Why not? Uh, Your Honor, thank you. So they don't have standing for a number of reasons. First, redressability, right? This is a law review article. It does not bind a single state court judge that actually adjudicates a, um, a, a state court adoption proceeding. Second, there is no injury in fact. There is not a single individual plaintiff who has had an adoption that existed from the time of the amended complaint through the Fifth Circuit judgment. And so there is no injury in fact. And third, there has been some suggestion that the APA, the challenge to the APA uh, regs under the APA might save the equal protection challenge. That is incorrect. The injury to the plaintiffs is coming from the preferences in the statute. There is nothing about the challenge to the regs that eliminates the preferences in the statute or the definition of Indian child. And so there is no standing on the equal protection side. Does it, for does it make a difference that our ruling would bind state officials? Absolutely not, Your Honor. Uh, the, the court has been crystal clear that standing, needs, that standing needs to be established in the lower court. Every case would have standing. There would be no advisory opinions because, of course, what this court says binds everybody. And so the fact that, that uh, it's made it this far through an erroneous standing ruling does not cure the, the standing problem that existed at the start. And then I will say, although Your Honor asked me about individuals, um, Texas has no equal protection rights here. Texas goes on and on. We heard all the numbers this morning about their injury. That's nice, but injury does not create an equal protection right. And basically what, what Texas's view would do is completely eviscerate third-party standing. Georgia v. McCollum could have been a very short opinion. It could have just said, Texas is participating in an unconstitutional scheme. Thank you very much. But it didn't do that. It looked to see whether there were third-party rights that Georgia could assert that for some reason the third party was unlikely to assert. And, but regardless of whether teenage drinkers or excluded jurors have a disincentive to, um, to bring court cases, that has no application to the situation here where the individual plaintiffs are in court litigating. So there is no justification for Texas to assert rights, and obviously uh, the parents' patriae is not available against the federal government. So there is no standing, in addition to the fact that the preferences that have most troubled, for example, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, they were never applied to any, like, it's like standing on standing on standing problems. It's like, a, it's like inverse of turtles all the way down. It's like the absence of turtles anywhere. Um, I need a better metaphor. Um, but, but. Thank you. 
Justice Gorsuch? Um, you haven't had a chance to address the commandeering arguments, in particular with respect to the active efforts provision. So the active efforts provision, I, I think I would say uh, two things on that. First of all, the main point from our perspective is that, and this is at footnote 44 of uh, footnote 54 on page 85 of our brief, is that it applies even even-handedly to. This does not single out Texas or does not single out states for particular treatment. It applies just as much in private placements, and the, that's set forth in the brief. I also think that it is it is right to view this as a situation in which a private right is created. You have the the, the individual Indian child, the, the tribe has a right to, um, you know, to, to have the placement done only after active efforts are, you know, active efforts are done. And so I, I think that um, with respect to the active efforts provisions under this court's, court's case law, a provision that applies even-handedly to private parties and to states um, and creates private rights is, is not commandeering, not impermissible uh, commandeering. I think we heard from Texas that uh, it disproportionately affects them because most of these are initiated by state entities right. and also that they'd have to do some work even in the event of a private initiated suit. Yeah, I think, Your Honor, that way madness lies. If this court is going to evaluate even-handed restrictions to see whether on balance they affect more states than private parties, we've really extended the, you know, the anti-commandeering doctrine and I think that this court's caseload um, uh, quite substantially because, uh, you know, that what the, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, not to mention cases like Reno v. Condon. I mean, once you start to say, yes, it regulates even-handedly, yes, in the real world, there are private and state parties at issue, but we're going to look to it uh, and say it more often affects, you know, states. Uh, and, and I think Reno v. Condon is sort of against that. I, mean, I think that was one where the state may have been um, more affected. But in any event, um, I, I don't think that that's a sensible line that this court could ever draw to look at statute by statute in the real world. Does this affect states more than private citizens? Is there any inhibition to a private party raising an as-applied equal protection challenge to the third preference in state court litigation? Absolutely not. And it hasn't happened in 40 years that you're aware of? I'll just say it has not been brought to our attention either as we've done our research or the other side. As Your Honor knows, record-keeping in family law cases is tricky, but I'm not aware of, uh, I'm not aware of uh, an equal protection clause challenge to the third pr placement. And indeed, I just want to reemphasize, which I've said before, it has not been applied to any of the plaintiffs here. And finally, I, <clears throat> I understand this court sometimes speaks when Congress hasn't in Indian affairs, but, but here we have a statute by Congress. And are you aware of any time this court in 200 years is struck down as facially invalid an exercise of Congress's plenary powers over Indian affairs. Uh, I am not. Justice Kavanaugh? Yeah, two questions. First, you mentioned that the average age is six and a half. Uh, I assume that means there are hundreds or thousands of children who are relative newborns, one, two, three, over the years who are affected by this statute. There's no age cutoff in the statute, or are you uh, correct? There is no age cutoff and in the statute. Are you aware that it's been applied differently? This, with newborns or so, Your Honor, I, that's a trickier question because I, I mean I, that's one that I don't think anybody has the empirical research on. I think as a practical matter, it would surprise me if it weren't that the statute, the the good cause exception itself provides a different application. It says that the wishes of a of a child who is old enough to express them. 
um, are taken into account. The cultural bonds that an older child would have uh, almost certainly would be taken into account. If the child comes in and says, you know, I, I have a friend group, I have a sports team, I have after school activities. So you're I, not a, that, those are good points, but you're not aware that that's reflected in any We're on a facial challenge, Your Honor, so I'm not aware of anything in the record one way or the other. That's the problem, I think, not the solution. No, no, fair point. Uh, Secondly, on the land question, I just want to make sure the sentence from Moncari that you can uh, respond to it, quote, literally every piece of legislation dealing with Indian tribes and reservations and certainly all legislation dealing with the BIA single out for special treatment a constituency of tribal Indians living on or near reservations, end quote. Is that accurate then? Is it still accurate now? I think it was. I think the scope of history of Indian law suggests that it is not accurate and was never accurate. The Congress has legislated for tribal and tribal members off the land and has registered legislated for non-Indians under the Indian powers um, from the beginning. But as I said, like, to me, the bigger problem is, is, is two, two points, Your Honor. One is I really think it's important that Mankari isn't the root of the Congress's special treatment of Indians. That dates back to the text of the Constitution and from the very first Trade and Intercourse Acts um, that, that that um, that that started, and then for the reasons I've said, and I won't repeat, I think land is like uh, is just a nonsensical um, a, a nonsensical way to crosscut, given what the Constitution was trying to do vis-a-vis the Articles of Confederation, given the history of the treatment, and given what your, this court your has point, said. Sorry, 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 your point, sorry, because your your point is the sentence is not accurate. I mean, the tip off should have been the word literally, I suppose, but it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Justice Barrett. Active efforts. Um, I'm just trying to get a picture for how this works. You're saying it applies to private parties and the state. And this is just because I'm having a difficult time imagining how this actually happens on the ground. You have to show that efforts have been made to provide remedial services and rehabilitation programs designed to prevent the breakup of the Indian family. Who, I mean, Texas says, well, that's those are state-run programs that would be those efforts, like the rehabilitation? How does that work in the context so Your Honor, of a I private have to confess, party? I don't know, and I, I apologize for that. No. I don't know how that works in the real world in private placements. It doesn't seem to me that it inevitably has to go through the state services, but the, the candid answer to your question is I just don't know. Okay, and then one other quick question. Would your client have any objection? I, I asked General Stone, okay, well, one, one argument that the government makes is this isn't com- commandeering because you can walk away. You know, you can decide not to do this. Would your client have any objection then if the state of Texas, General Stone said, our substantive law requires us to undertake efforts to place children in foster care in these circumstances and it would be unmanageable for us to discern when a child is Indian or a member of a tribe or not? Let's imagine Texas says, okay, we want to walk away. We don't want to engage in these active efforts, so we're just going to get out of the business. And if we can discern that a child is a member of a tribe, our agencies will not be involved in placing the children in foster care. So, Your Honor, okay. I, I mean, I think that would be a disaster on the ground. If, but, if but, could, could, well, but would it be legal for Texas to do that? Would there be an equal protection challenge that someone could bring against Texas for treating Indian children differently when it comes to foster placement? Um, I mean, you're saying uh, that there yeah. would be political consequences or practical consequences to Texas walking away from foster care, and I agree. Yeah. And, Ms. and General Stone made and that And I think point. it would be hard I'm, for me to argue your I'm sorry to cut you off. Finish your question. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, but what I'm asking is, if we're thinking about whether Texas has a legal choice, it 
There might yeah. be practical considerations. I guess I'm trying to figure out, is this really voluntary? So I think I would have to say, Your Honor, given that there were no, for the first 150 some odd years of our country, there was no child care system at all, that it would be hard for me to say that Texas is constitutionally required to have one. Um, but but that's, if they have that's one, it. could they cut Indian children out of it, is my question. Because they don't have to uh, no, obey ICWA with respect to our I think our if phone. Texas, I think that would raise serious equal protection problems. If so they, they don't have a choice then? Well, they have a complying. choice whether to participate in the proceedings at all. They may or may, they, what they may not be able to do is say, I'm doing it only for non-Indian children. Participate in proceedings, in, you mean in, in foster care? Correct. In a foster care system? Correct. I don't think there's any constitutional requirement they have a foster care but system. But if they have a foster care system, they couldn't say, because of what ICWA requires us to undertake in these active efforts and the, you know, they complain about the record keeping, we just want none of that, so we're going to walk away from that. We're not going to let the federal government um, impose those obligations on us. So. I think that's right, but I have to say, of all the answers I've given today, that's the one I'm least confident. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Justice Jackson? Yes, so is the reason that you, in response to Justice Barrett, the first part of her question said that you don't really know the details of how ICWA would play out in the ways that she indicated is because we're here on a facial challenge and not an as-applied challenge. You focused on that a I couple times. I think it's times. most honest to say, yes, compounded by my own ignorance. Okay. <laughs> well, I, can you just help okay. me to understand the implications of the facial versus as-applied yeah. um, nature of the challenge sure. that's, being, that's being brought here? I think it comes in, in two important ways. First of all, I think it completely changes the standard of review that this court, um, that this court uses. What the court has said in facial challenges is statutes, congressional statutes survive if they have a plainly legitimate scope. And so I think that like it completely changes the way we talk about, for example, the, the, third, um, the third preference. Um, and, you know, then I think on the flip side, uh, in addition to sort of the change in legal standard, it changes how we talk about it. What we are talking about here is a series of hypotheticals. Honestly, we don't even have the facts of the individual cases before us. Remember, these are child care proceedings. I mean, there's a debate about, um, about child P, and then there's an amicus brief from the grandmother. They're, they're presenting starkly different views of what happened. The reason we're doing that is because we're here on facial challenge, right? How this plays out in the real world, what the limits are. This is a very, very difficult area of the law, as the last two or three hours have shown. Um, and, and to decide it on the basis of hypotheticals that never arise in the real world, and yet take away a statute that has made such a meaningful difference for so many children, um, it, it seems to me just like not the way this court should be deciding questions. Uh, go back to what I said at the start. A, a, a deciding a facial challenge to a statute in a situation where there is no standing seems to me like a very poor way to resolve major challenges to critical legislation. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. The case is submitted. No? I'm sorry, Mr. McGill. <laughs> it is late. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Chief Justice. I will uh, take the hint. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I want to start uh, with how this works in practice. Um, I assure you it is not at all hypothetical. Um, 
it starts with the Brackeens and families like them being on a list of willing foster care providers. Joint Appendix 108 says, we are willing to be foster parents for other children in the future. When a child comes into the foster care system, the preferences are applied. That's 1915B. The final rule is applied. The good cause requirement to the final rule is applied, and it is applied each and every time an Indian child comes into the system. This is not like Haley's Comet. It comes around a lot. In Texas alone, in, uh, in footnote four of the district court opinion, 39 children, uh, Indian children in, in the state foster care system. Joint Appendix 108, Texas alleges this happens several times a year. How does the good cause get, uh, requirement get applied on the ground, I would ask the court to please look at the, the Court of Appeals decision in YRJ's case called Interest of YRJ. It says that in seeking to establish good cause for not following the placement preferences, the, the party must bring forth by clear and convincing evidence of, of good cause. That good cause must be based on at least one of several considerations. My friend on the other side says this is a disarray in the state courts. I would respectfully suggest it is regulatory design. Um, the government, in any event, has conceded that this is intended to override the normal application of the best interest tests. We heard a little bit about the third preference. The government suggests that it applies to maybe only related tribes. We know why it applies. It's in this court's decision in Hollyfield. There is a federal policy to send Indian children to the Indian community, not their community as the government seeks to alter it in the brief, the Indian community writ large. It, we heard that the proprietary interest uh, is maybe just a duty of protection. I would submit YRJ was a citizen of Texas before she was given her, her certificate of Indian blood. Texas has at least as much proprietary interest as the Navajo Nation does here. Um, the third preference and the biological component of the Indian child definition is the smoking gun textual evidence here that Congress was acting with a racial purpose. And it's backstopped by the House report, which talks about identifying a children who have common blood. It says that blood relationship is the very touchstone of the ability to remain, to enjoy the benefits of a tribe. Um, the government here is making, in fact, the same argument it made in Rice on the equal protection point. You can see that from Justice Ginsburg's one-paragraph dissent. But there's one notable exception. In Rice, at oral argument, the government was prepared to, to concede that these preferences could not be applied in the outer world. It, and it recognized that this distinction was rooted in Mankari itself. So that's why Rice concludes that the administration of state laws by a state agency is that outer world. It's the new and larger dimension to which Mankari could not possibly be applied. That, the government's here is even broader than it made in Rice, and it can't be squared with Rice's holding that a tribal classification can be a proxy for race. The classification was you know, po political in Mankari because it directly advanced tribes' ability to govern themselves. The justice and treasury hypotheticals, Justice Kavanaugh, present more difficult questions, it was conceded, because the tie to self-governance in those cases is, is much more attenuated. Rice held that the Hawaii statute's advancement of indigenous self-government was insufficient 
to make that classification political because it operated in the sphere of administration of state laws by a state agency. ICWA has no connection to tribal government at all. Whether YRJ is adopted by the Brackeens will not affect one iota the Navajo Nation's ability to pass its own laws or to govern themselves. It doesn't apply on Indian lands at all. It doesn't even affect tribal existence. She is already a member of the Navajo Nation and will remain so. YRJ is subjected to a different legal standard here based on a status that she has zero ability to control. That differing legal standard, the placement preferences, is at best a set of stereotypes about what is best for the child that's that has Indian ancestry. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <laughs>